Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We hope that you're enjoying these studies in Daniel. They've been the highlight of our weeks for sure. Tonight represents a significant challenge for us. As we've already seen in Daniel, the pericopes and the chapter divisions can be significantly misleading. We're thankful for the ability to quickly reference chapter and verse. But the chapter divisions all too often imply a transition of themes and subject matter that is entirely incorrect. (laughs) Unfortunately, this has led to erroneous divisions in the thematic content within Daniel that were never intended by either the author or his amazing God. Hmm. Additionally, the pericopes often go so far as to label empires not identified in the text, which only furthers and compounds misunderstandings. It really isn't unusual to approach a chapter of the Bible with predetermined bias that distorts the intended understanding of the content. But it is even worse when the chapter divisions and the chapter headings unintentionally reinforce those very errors. Even the subject headings in our Bibles are often derived from theological determinations rather than actual textual analysis. Our preference would have been to teach Daniel 7 all the way through Daniel 12 as a single unit without chapter divisions at all. But as you can imagine, that would have been impractical in our settings for tonight. We have actually come to believe that the vast majority of Christians have been trained to dissect the word rather than connect the word. That's true. Now, as Westerners, we're trained to make categories that neatly arrange the details within systems, right? We then teach those systems to one another in an ever-narrowing and simplified fashion so that it will be digestible for our hearers. This process leads to seeing dispensations in the Bible rather than one unified story. This same process leads to seeing covenants in the Bible given to the same singular family as categories that replace each other rather than expand on one another. This process of dissection leads to segmentation of the very word of God itself rather than unification of the Lord's expressions who is one God. We could spend hours demonstrating that for you. How a chapter break or a chapter heading causes you to read the text differently and it wasn't in the original scroll. But what we'd rather use our time to express is the connections that all tell one unified story. Tonight we'll be covering all of chapter 10 and a large portion of chapter 11. We're doing that in an effort to maintain the intended continuity of the prophetic themes in Daniel. Then next week together, we'll pick up the remaining portion of Daniel 11 and then move into Daniel 12. And we will probably follow in the third week with what we've learned from Daniel. As we move forward, we hope that it becomes obvious to you that the visions and heavenly messages of Daniel are not telling disparate and segmented stories to be arranged like puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. 
We believe that these divine messages are all telling the same unified story and must be viewed as expansions of each other. So let's start with the slide. This slide has become familiar to us, but as we go through, we're also going to consider something else that the Lord intended in Daniel. So this slide is the chronology of Daniel. Chapter 1 was about the Babylonian captivity and the training that occurred in Babylon. Then we had chapter 2 next, where Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream and an interpretation. Then next came chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar's image and the fiery furnace. After that was chapter 4 chronologically, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree, interpretation, and pride. Then we jumped to chapter 7 in chronological order. The dream of the four beasts and its interpretation. Next was chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat and its interpretation. Then notice what happens after chapter 8. Chronologically, you go back to chapter 5, the writing on the wall, Babylon falls to the Persians. Then you jump ahead to chapter 9 with Daniel's prayer and the message of the 70 weeks. Then you go back to chapter 6 chronologically and you talk about the lion's den. And finally, the last three chapters of Daniel, 10 through 12, round out chronologically Daniel as a book with closing visions. So the chronology of the book of Daniel is clearly not in order as you move from chapter to chapter and one event to the other. We can point that out from the beginning as we move through the chapters so you better understand the historical setting of each event. Now, some of you have asked, why don't you guys just teach them in chronological order? The answer is because that is not the way Adonai had the book of Daniel lined out. So that does beg a very serious question. Why are they arranged out of chronological order? Good question. It's a good question. (laughs) The answer to that question is because God arranged them that way on purpose. The author who designed the universe laid out these chapters to speak a specific message. Apparently, the Lord wanted you to become familiar with Daniel and his brother's lives as faithful Jews prior to encountering the detailed prophecies. The Lord also wanted you to have the prophecies grouped together so that you could make the connections between them rather than seeing them as disparate. We have a slide for you to help you see what we mean. So when you're looking at this slide, notice that blue box at the top. These are all events that are in chronological order within the life of Daniel. And they're not interrupted by the visions that took place. So in chapter 1, you learn about the distinctiveness of faithful Jews in Babylon. In chapter 2, you see a Babylonian king's four-empire dream that only the Jewish people can interpret. In chapter 3, you find faithful Jews facing the fiery furnace of tribulation under the first empire that would rule over them. In chapter 4, you see the results of faithful Jewish witness and the resulting... Salvation of King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, you see that the Jews are transitioning from the first empire that would rule over them to the second empire 
and that it was solely an act of God's own hand. That's intended. In chapter 6, you find faithful Jews face the lions of tribulation under empire number 2. In other words, the pattern is repeating in their lives that no matter how good they are to people and a benefit to the world, they are still going to come under tribulation. Then you move to the red box on the screen. The dream in chapter 7 of four beastly empires that oppressed Jews. That is the first of those apocalyptic visions given to the Jewish people. Daniel 2 was given to a Babylonian. Then in chapter 8, the vision of transition from Empire 2 to Empire 3. And you get details of the transition from the third empire to the fourth empire, as well as the force activities. They're building on each other. In chapter 9, the Jewish repentance that you see in Daniel's life is extraordinary, and you also get specific details of the fourth empire and how the Jews will be redeemed as a people. In chapters 10... 11 and 12, which are all one unit and really cannot be separated. The book closes by zooming in on the transition that occurs between the third and fourth empire. Because everybody would want to know, how do you find the fourth empire? And the activities of the fourth empire and the way that no matter how difficult they are, it still culminates in the redemption of the Jewish nation. That is the way that God arranged this book. He did it out of chronological order so you would get familiar with the people and then what is going to happen. And he put them out of chronological order but in the series of events in their lives and then in the series of the prophetic events as he wanted you to encounter them. So as you're looking at this slide, you can see that every vision or heavenly message in Daniel is pertaining to the four beastly empires that will fall to the ultimate victory in Messiah and the redemption of the Jewish people. The chapters in the red box were arranged in a way that would emphasize their continuity and the culminating events in the fourth empire by the way that remains unnamed throughout the scriptures. The truth is that they should all be taught together and as one unit. But modern attention spans just make the effectiveness of that proposition unlikely. (laughs) So tonight, we're going to try to help you make connections as we go. You're going to need to keep in mind that Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all the same event. You guys hear that? Yeah. 10, 11, and 12, we're talking about the same event. And also, those chapters should not be viewed as separate. Throw your chapter breaks out the window. That is one contiguous event. Chapter 10 is the beginning of an angelic experience. Chapter 11 is the details of the message. And chapter 12 is the angelic <laughs> explanation of the details. So, knowing that now, let's review a few slides that will help remind you of things that you have learned in the progressive revelation of the prophecies in Daniel that all tell 
the same story. Come on. All right, so I love this slide. Yeah. Let's review. We remember the first uh, kingdom is Babylon, and Daniel 2 is a head of gold. Daniel 7 is a lion. And Daniel 8, it's not mentioned because Daniel is in it. <laughs> the second kingdom is Medo-Persia, described as having chest and arms of silver. And Daniel 2, described as a bear. And Daniel 7, and a ram in Daniel 8. Now notice the red box here. The third kingdom is Greece. And Daniel 2 has belly and thighs of what? Bronze. And Daniel 7 is a leopard. And in Daniel 8 is a super goat with four regional kingdoms. Now this is important and we're going to keep harping on it. The fourth kingdom is unnamed in the scripture. But in Daniel 2 it's described as having legs of iron, feet of iron, and clay. In Daniel 7 is an indescribable beast with a little horn with a big mouth and teeth and iron, uh, teeth of iron and what kind of claws? Bronze. And in Daniel 8, we are submitting that this is a Middle Eastern uh, region. We're not submitting it. Uh, it is. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. It is a Middle Eastern kingdom that is led by a small horn. Now, just in case, as that slide went through quickly, I want to remind you, there's layering that is going on here. You should notice that each of Daniel's experiences are telling the same story throughout through various means. So we have a statue. Then we have animals. It's multiple ways that are displaying and increasing an understanding about the same thing throughout. It's building an overall picture through each successive chapter. Real quick, imagine for a second that you disconnect Daniel 2 from Daniel 7. Or that you disconnect Daniel 7 from Daniel 8. What would that do? Well, it destroys your overall picture. And, and that's exactly what we don't want to be done. Amen. These were all grouped together for reasons. We think that it is a significant, a significant error has been made. We've spoken frankly with you about this by men who have studied this before us in their assignment of the Diodoka to the Third Kingdom of Greece. Do you guys remember that? Yes. yes. So it's understandable since when Alexander was alive, somebody say, was, was alive. alive. Was alive. There were four heads on the leopard or wings on the leopard, but after he died, that situation changed. So you can see on the slide, Daniel 7, the leopard had four heads, four wings, and then something drastically changed as soon as he died. This next slide says the four horns following Alexander. So we learned together that they did not rule collectively as a singular nation. They did not all rule the geographical area of Babylon. Only the Seleucids did. They fought against one another. They allied with other nations against one another. They should not be seen as a singular empire. There was a division at the moment that Alexander died. The Bible itself refers to them as four separate kingdoms. So while you're considering this, and I know that this part is not new information, at least not new information to you as of the last two weeks. It is new information to the entire uh, Christian world, though. And you need to appreciate that for a second. What we're saying is that a transition is described in the Bible between the third and the fourth empire that involves successive smaller regional kingdoms. That is true in Daniel 8, and you will find out that it is stated even more emphatically 
in Daniel 11 tonight. These smaller regional kingdoms, they didn't increase the territory like Empire Mm 1 and Empire 2 did. Uh, They didn't increase the territory like Alexander did. So they also did not increase in strength and ferocity the way that all of the other empires did that are outlined. We believe that they're a transition and not an empire. In fact, you'll hear that exact wording in the biblical text. You'll see, confirmed before the end of tonight, for the second time, that the Bible itself distinguishes them from Empire 1, 2, 3, and 4. And yet commentators do not. And the prevailing opinions of our time are distorted because of this. And even your headings above your text reflect the interpretive view that is popular today, but it is not what the Bible teaches, at least in my not-so-humble opinion. (laughs) So tonight, as we move through chapters 10 and 11... You will see an expansion of that time period, the time period transitioning from the third to the fourth kingdom. In addition to the presentation of the fourth and final empire in God's eschatological plan. We're going to show you another familiar slide to help you visualize what we are saying. And as you look at the slide, things are getting more clear. We hope they are anyway. We see four Gentile beastly kingdoms. Notice the statue from Daniel 2 and notice that as each kingdom takes over, as each kingdom comes, they decrease in value and they increase in their strength and dominance over the Middle East. So the first kingdom, Babylonia, is the head of gold, as it is said in Daniel 2. It's also the winged lion, as the scripture puts it in Daniel 7. Then we go to the second kingdom, Medo-Persia. Daniel 2 says that that is the chest and arms of silver. It is a lopsided bear in Daniel 7, and it is depicted as a ram with lopsided horns in Daniel 8. Now as we move to the third kingdom, this is Greece, the belly and thighs of what? Bronze. Bronze, as Daniel 2 states. This is correlating to the winged leopard with four heads in Daniel 7, and the super goat with a single horn in Daniel 8. This is representing the time period when Alexander the Great is alive and he has four generals under his command. Now, after Alexander the Great dies, we have a transitioning time after his death. What we see in that transitioning time is that four horns arise that are four separate kingdoms. Then out of only one of those horns comes a small horn. This is the fourth kingdom. This is the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, as spoken of in Daniel 2. It is an indescribable beast with iron teeth and what? Bronze Bronze claws, claws. the only element that shares in Daniel 7. And then a little horn rises out of ten, defeating three in Daniel 7. So again, the divine messages in Daniel... They all have symmetry. They're all a unified message. They each ultimately point to the conflict between the fourth empire and the triumph of the kingdom of God. You guys want to see a lightly detailed summary of the chapters 
and how these chapters are indeed a continued story? Yeah. Yes. yes. We've got a slide for you tonight about that. This slide says, Unity of the Visions and Message of Daniel. So chapter 2 gives us the overall scope of the four Gentile empires. Overall scope in chapter 2. That's where we start. Chapter 7 introduces the Baranash that ends the four Gentile empires. We're getting a little bit more revelation, a little bit more detail. Chapter 8 gives us the region, yeah. gives us the nature, gives us the activities of the small or little horn ruling the fourth Gentile empire, and it gives us transition information in chapter 8. Watch this. Daniel chapter 9. It reiterates these things, and it has a timeline for Israel's redemption. Come on. We're getting more revelation as we go here. Yes. What about chapters 10 through 11? They give us more detail, give us more insight into that transition period from the third to the fourth kingdom, and gives us insight into the belief and practice of the Antichrist himself. Shows us what his character is like. And then finally, in chapter 12, it gives us details of Israel's final redemption Amen. after the demise of the four Gentile empires. Amen. Come on. Okay, so since all the kingdoms were Middle Eastern, and each of the chapters describing the transition period between the third and the fourth kingdom involves the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, we expect that the coming Antichrist will rise out of this general area on this slide. Damn. Damn. So you guys are looking at that. You see our same general geography showing up over and over again? Yeah. Does anybody remember the maps from last week? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Lastly, we want to take a look at the biggest trigger that we have available to us regarding the identification of the fourth empire and the triumph of the kingdom of God. You guys ready for this? Yeah. Yes. This comes from Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see... Standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. <laughs> Guys, take a look at the red box. Jesus was not referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, since that was in his historic past. Jesus was referring to the whole context of the scroll of Daniel, without chapter breaks or divisions that weren't in the scroll of Daniel. Oh my. This is because the visions all have the same unified outcome as the result of them. Look, we've gone through great lengths in previous sessions to show you that this was the view of Matthew. It was the view of Mark. It was the view of Luke. It was the view of John. And it was the view of Paul. This is demonstrable in their writings. Looking for fulfillment of these events prior to to their writings is an untenable position from a biblical point of view. John wrote after <coughs> Titus was credited. Somebody say credited. credited. With the destruction of the temple. The temple was destroyed without the approbation of Titus or approval of Rome. You read that in Josephus last week. The temple was destroyed by hostile neighboring powers that are historically documented to reside within the Seleucid geography on the map that we've been showing you. We even broke down the legions for you. Titus is not the fulfillment of the events in Daniel, 
And the temple was not reconsecrated 2,300 evenings and mornings later. In fact, it wasn't reconsecrated 2,000 years later. Daniel actually speaks of multiple desolations. That's going to be an important point for you to get. They're both in his past and in his future. And we're going to show you that. This is important to understand when you're trying to identify the most obvious trigger in all of the scripture regarding the final years of beastly Gentile power in the fourth empire. Pay close attention to this slide. All right. So look at the screen and you're going to see that we titled this slide desolations, plural, and the abomination that causes desolation. There's a difference. There have been many historic desolations of Jerusalem and the temple. I think you know that. Let's show you from the scripture. Daniel 9 verse 2 says, Given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel 9.17 says, For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Was this in Daniel's future or Daniel's past? This was in Daniel's past. Now look at Daniel 9.26 in the last part of the verse. It mentions desolations until the end and final redemption of Israel. It reads, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations, plural, have been decreed. Y'all catch that? Not a singular event. Multiple events have been decreed. Now, however, within Daniel, there is a unique feature of the final desolation of the temple and Jerusalem. So the issue is not that any desolation fulfills the events Daniel's prophecies are pointing to, but rather that a singular event will completely fulfill every detail that Daniel points us to. We have another slide. It's, the, it's part two of the slide that you just saw. Desolations and the abomination that causes desolation. As in the singular event that will completely fulfill every detail that Daniel points us to. The final abomination that causes desolation is consistently displayed in the fourth empire and is a unique trigger in that aspect. Look at Daniel 8, verse 13. The rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How about in Daniel 9, verse 27? He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Again, you see it in Daniel 11, verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation, the singular trigger, the ultimate trigger. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So we have certainly given you a lot to think about. Please keep these things in mind as we try to maintain the sense of unity and continuity 
that the book of Daniel's arrangement intends. Tonight we'll be reading from Daniel 10 verse 1 through 11 verse 20, which gives us a large portion of what is a singular event. Next week we'll be venturing into the remaining portions of that singular event. Right now, I'm going to pray for us, and Miss Jen is going to read the chapter, Amen. and we will get started with Daniel chapter 10. Yes. Mighty God, we thank you that you have revealed your word to us. But we ask that you would help us have our minds open, our hearts open to receive your word, that it might bring about mysteries and revelation in our lives that will show us the path of where to walk, or that you might strengthen our feet. That you might strengthen our knees and our hands for the walk ahead of us. Lord, and that you would unify us in a way that we would be one arm, one body, working on earth in your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. In the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror, <coughs> but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the per Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. 
When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against Michael, it, uh, your prince. I'm sorry. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius, Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up for everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger and he, than he, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His son will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. The king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will, will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invaders will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to, he will determine to come with a might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the <coughs> south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom but his plans will not succeed or help him then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them but a commander will be will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him after this he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, 
but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Wow. Wow. Rouse yourself. (laughs) Every ounce of the word of God is inspired, holy, and life-giving. Some of you look like we're asking you to read a genealogy. And you just heard about angelic messages. Angelic warfare, battles that sweep over the earth. Man, it's more than naive. It takes willful ignorance to believe that the Bible is boring. What we're about to dive into, men have searched for thousands of years, asking the Almighty to give them insight to. And you get to participate in that tonight. Brother Linton, please help us out with verse 1 as we get started. In the third year of of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Why don't we start there? Do you guys remember how the last chapter ended? It ended with a statement about the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel had been in a prayerful and fasting state at the time that the message was delivered by Gabriel in our last chapter. We are now in the final years of Daniel's Life. He's had quite the career. But you need to notice he is still troubled by the vision that he received. Towards the end of his life. Since Daniel 1 verse 21 describes Daniel's public life as ending in the first year of Cyrus. And we are in the third year of Cyrus. Well, you guys should probably think of him in a kind of uh, retirement phase. (laughs) Obviously taking it easy here. Now, it's comparable to the Apostle John in every way on the Isle of Patmos. He is searching for revelation. And he is about to receive extraordinary revelation. Guys, But he is still troubled by this message that he received in Daniel 9. What is crazy is that you learned last week that Daniel 9 itself is only a message. It is a message that explains the vision he had back in Daniel 8. So this whole time, this is what is brewing inside of Daniel, now up to the third year of Cyrus. We're going to show you a slide, and it's because we want you to understand the connections between the chapters. Chapter 8 is not significantly different than what we're doing tonight. They're all connected. Last week, we covered Daniel 9, 20 through 23. I'm going to read it here from the slide. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message of chapter 8 and understand the vision. Yeah, (laughs) This this is incredible. In Daniel 8, 27, he is appalled and didn't understand the vision. I said that incorrectly a second ago. Actually, Daniel 8 is a vision, 
And it includes something that is horrifying to Daniel. Daniel's standing in a time there is no temple. And he's hearing that when there is a temple again, an abomination that causes desolation will be set up in it. In Daniel 8, 27, it's referred to as the rebellion that causes desolation. Then in Daniel 9, there is no vision. There is only a message from the angel to provide understanding into Daniel 8's vision. That was a key find, friends. As soon as Daniel began to pray, Gabriel was sent to help him understand the vision of chapter 8. Gabriel's explanation is the content of chapter 9. What's amazing is even at the end of his life and in retirement in chapter 10, Daniel is still earnestly seeking to understand the unified message that we have been telling you about. There are many reasons for his disposition, but a huge one is Ezra 1.1. It says, in the first year, Say first year. First year. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Mm -hmm. So engage with that for a moment. Ezra has a word that authorizes the process of rebuilding the temple and all of the messages that Daniel has received indicated that it will experience desolations again. Right up to the point that the abomination that causes desolation occurs. That must have been agonizing for Daniel. In his retirement phase, he is still praying over this. Mm -hmm. How should you feel about something like that? Would it cause you to agonize for your people? It must have been terribly disconcerting to have heard about the abomination that causes desolation in the vision of chapter 8 and the message of chapter 9. Remember that the original vision and subsequent message were given at a time when the temple was not even rebuilt yet. And Daniel is now in a time when that process is starting to occur. So verse 1 of chapter 10 seems to indicate that Daniel received a revelation. It still seems that Daniel was troubled by the vision of chapter 8 And the message of chapter 9. What we are about to read is the process of Daniel receiving further explanation through a vision and interpretation of the original events in chapters 8 and 9. The point here is that these are all one subject. And the book is arranged in an effort for you to make connections on a singular subject. Remember... That Daniel knows that future desolations will occur in the temple that is in the process of being rebuilt during these experiences. Let's pick up in verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food. No meat or wine touched my lips. And I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. (laughs) At that time, right? The ESV actually says... In those days, Daniel 10 records him in mourning and fasting from choice things again. Why? Well, the answer is because the progression described in Daniel 8 of the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by Alexander's Greece, then the transition into smaller regional kingdoms 
that a small horn would rise out of leading the fourth empire and causing the abomination of desolation? Well, all that, that whole process, it was a little bit disturbing to Daniel. Okay? It was so disturbing that Daniel was repenting and fasting in Daniel 9 after the vision of the abomination that causes desolation in that chapter. In those chapters, Gabriel came to help him understand and again told him that the fourth empire would cause the abomination of desolation. So in a sense, you could say Daniel's history is repeating itself. Every time he's distraught over what a vision means for his people in the days to come, guess what happens? An angelic figure shows up to help him. Wow. We are now finding Daniel again in prayer, again in fasting over those same subjects, and he's again going to receive angelic help in this process. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are all expansions of the same story as is detailed in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9. What about verse 4? On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. Okay, did anyone catch that? No, they didn't catch it. This prayerful, (laughs) repentant fast is occurring during unleavened bread, Passover, and first fruits. This would normally be a time when Jews celebrated their deliverance from Gentile Egypt with feasting and joyful exuberance. However, Daniel was just told in chapter 9 that the final deliverance of Israel uh, would progress over three heptatic periods. We certainly can't go back through all of that in detail, but here's a slide to remind you. That was awesome. You guys remember the slide? Yes. Okay, so in summary form, 70 total weeks, meaning a total of 490 years. The angel combined heptad A and heptad B. So our emphasis here at the moment is heptad C. During heptad C, the Antichrist, or the little horn, will confirm a covenant. And that creates an initiation point. In the middle of that covenant, somebody say halfway. Halfway. The Bible describes it as 42 months. 1,260 days, 3.5 years, almost in every possible way, halfway through that covenant, he's going to break it. And something's going to happen when he breaks it. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will then set up an abomination that causes desolation. These are events that will happen in Heptad C. Then the end decreed will be poured out on him in exactly the manner that God has prescribed it. Hallelujah. So consider this for a moment. Why is Daniel praying and fasting? Guys, he's praying and fasting because he knows how great the conflict will be to bring about the end of that fourth empire. He knows that the end is determined, but the conflict between is great. He knows this from the vision in chapter 8. And the vision's explanation or message on its subject matter that came to us in chapter 9. Those final seven years of God's eschatological plan, there's more said about than anything else that I can think of with more specificity (laughs) in the Bible. And yet debate rages about whether it's in the past or not. 
I wish we had more the attitude of Daniel where we were humbling ourselves, praying and fasting Amen. over the issue Amen. instead of just engaging in intellectualism that is honestly kind of a waste of time. Yeah. Daniel's also been comforted, though, about this time period and what the end of the heptatic periods will accomplish after the fourth empire is destroyed. You'll probably remember from Daniel 9 this slide, the accomplishments of the 77s. When this period is over, it will finish transgression. No, no more willful rebellion. When this period is over, there is an end to sin. No more wrong or sinful conduct. When this period is over, it will have atoned for wickedness. There will be no more liability, no more guilt. When this period is over, it will usher in everlasting righteousness. Hallelujah. It will seal up vision. They literally will not be needed. It will seal up prophecy. There's no more point. The aim of all prophecy has come about. And it will anoint the most holy. Whether that refers to the body of Messiah or the holy of holies, we will be in a time when it's done. And even in the light of that good news, even in the light of this good news, listen to this. Daniel is fasting and repenting during the very feasts that celebrate deliverance from Gentile powers. This really ought to point you to the continuity of the visions and messages from Daniel 7 through the end of the book. By the way, Daniel's fast may not have been a total fast. Uh Uh-oh. It may have been from choice foods. The reason for us mentioning that is because as an observant Jew, Daniel was required to eat the Passover lamb and get this, and bitter herbs and bread without yeast with his people. But he, he may mean that he ate no choice foods or optional luxurious meals or use lotions or anointing oils as the Hebrew describes during that time period. Now, the other possibility, which we see as unlikely, okay, is that Daniel was so distraught over the knowledge that the temple, which was in the process of rebuilding, was going to be made desolate again. Either way, the situation was troubling enough for this very old man to devote more time to repentance and prayer than food. Come on, somebody. Pick up in verse 5. Most 80-year-olds I know don't do anything but watch the news all day long. (laughs) Yeah, and and they're sugar fiends and fanatics. Daniel has dedicated himself to understanding what God has said. Amen. It's his full time consuming him. I'm sorry, let me pick up in five. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs Ooh. like the gleam of burnished bronze, on, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Wow, what an incredible description in these verses. Now, it's a common mistake for people to immediately jump to assumptions that this figure is definitely Gabriel. Now, he very well may be, but if you don't come to that conclusion through careful comparative studies it may be an assumption 
That is incorrect. Come on. You need to consider that Gabriel is named by Daniel in the text no less than two times. And on the second occasion, he's specifically mentioned as Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision. Recognized him. Yeah, he knew him right away. Now, if God had intended us to identify this figure with certainty as Gabriel, then the text would probably have said so, right? Now, by the end of this whole episode, which is not the end of this chapter, but falls in chapter 12, you will actually discover that there are three angelic figures, and none of them are named. Wow. There's one on the left of the river, one on the right of the river, and one above the river. Come on, Now, we don't know if that matters to you or not, but we are making every effort to look carefully into these things and avoid church assumptions that lead us into compounding errors or prevent us from seeing an even more beautiful scenario that resembles Genesis 18 with three angelic figures that seem to represent the Godhead. That's awesome. Now, as we move to verse 7, it has to be mentioned that Daniel is afflicted, when Daniel is afflicted by the word of God, and becomes repentant and prayerful, angels show up to minister to him. Come on! That's an entirely unfamiliar context to a New Testament church. It's interesting how these things are playing out. Brother Linton, you and I are going to work through a few verses together. You're going to get verse 7, and then we'll carry on together afterwards. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. (laughs) Think about this for just a moment. Okay? So for people who love to categorize events, like you want it neatly defined as exactly what happened. You want to draw systematic conclusions. This verse is enigmatic. I mean, it's puzzling. Daniel is said to be seeing a vision and is the only one seeing it. Yeah. But terror overwhelmed his companions who are around to the point where they hid themselves. From what? They're not seeing anything. Guys, that does not neatly fit within the category that is usually defined as visions. It, in fact, it sounds a whole lot more like the Apostle Paul's experience exactly. in Acts 9. Yeah, that's exactly. Why don't you go ahead and get verse 8 and 9 for me as this builds. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. I've been in a situation where I was left alone, and my face was deathly pale, and I fell to the ground, but it wasn't because I was facing an angel. It was a high school circle that I shouldn't have been in. Whatever this experience was, it had profound physical effects on Daniel, and his traveling companions who are said not to have seen it. They ran and hid. Let's pick up in 10 and keep working with this a bit. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you. Stand up, Mm. for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So let's, let's get this for a second. The angelic figure... Touched Daniel. But he's in a vision. Come on. <laughs> when a man has been touched from heaven, oh, come yeah. on. it ought to make a lifelong difference. Yeah. 
Have you been filled with the spirit of holiness of God? How can we ever live the same after something like that? Next, listen to the first words spoken by Daniel. Or the first words spoken to Daniel. He was called by name. Oh, man, when you realize that heaven knows your name. Come on, somebody. How could you ever live for normal earthly ambitions again? Next, he said, you are highly esteemed. Or in the ESV, you are a man greatly loved. Yeah. Guys, when you find out that Adonai has a great love for you, that the king of kings actually loves you, How can the impact of that ever fade into mundane, ordinary living ever again? Next, he says, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you. Church, when heaven has spoken to you. Come on. When heaven has spoken to you. How could we ever go about our day without carefully considering everything that we do and whether or not it's obedient to what we've been told. Yeah. Oh, come on now. That's not all that happened, though. No, it's not. The next part is my favorite. <laughs> he has to stand up. Yeah. Stand up! Yeah. My God, yeah. Christo. How can we, as spiritual believers, be touched by the God of heaven, be called out by name? He knows who you are, greatly loved by him, and in careful consideration of his word, Without taking a stand for him. Saints, this is what this is producing. In the midst of these teachings, where we are looking into the future, asking God to give us insight, never forget, this is how you are to take your stand. This is what our hour is for. Saints, your hour has come to take your stand in your parenting. Your hour has come to take your stand in your marriage. We can't waste any more time. Take your stand in your workplace. Man, take a stand in the marketplace. Take it up in Kroger. Take it up in H-E-B. God gave you (laughs) revelation for a reason. And it's not to be wasted. We need to take a stand in our day, our time, in the world he has put us in. For the God of heaven has singled you out, Christian. Now, at times we all get afraid. We want to shrink back. We want to wait for a minute. Think about Daniel's example. Daniel stood up even though he was trembling. Amen. Oh, come on. Christian, nobody's saying your hands won't tremble. We're saying raise them anyway. We're saying God will make your knees strong as you choose to stand in the will of God. By God, you will stand like Daniel. Look, we're about to move further in the verse, but this is, this is, it is both a Bible study of Daniel and this is a church meeting. What conclusion would you have to come to after seeing this if a man will not stand up, oh, if, if a man will not recite and, and care for the words God gave him, if a man has never heard his name from heaven, if he is not sure that the God of heaven has put his finger on him, then he can't do these things. But when somebody has actually been touched of God, then it's not a matter of, well, I'm just an introvert. I don't like to speak like you do. I would just prefer to sit in the back and be quiet. When you've been touched by God, even if you tremble, by God you stand up. Because heaven has singled you out. I'm telling you, this is your hour to do so. Amen. 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 
Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding Amen. and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. I love this repeating theme. Yeah. Every time he sets out to pray, the <laughs> Lord comes through a vis-a-vis -vis an angel to help him. The most common reading of verse 12 would be that the first day Daniel set his mind to gain understanding was at the beginning of the 21-day fast. But the truth is that Daniel has been seeking an understanding of these prophecies since he was first appalled by them and declared that he didn't understand them all the way back in chapter 8 and verse 27. They're connected. Man, when you agonize over the word, oh, come on. the word does something in you. It will agitate your soul until you can no longer stay seated. Amen. Amen. In Daniel 9, he was seeking understanding. Yeah. In Daniel 10, he is still seeking understanding. <laughs> you know, perhaps the reason Daniel was so loved is that from the time he first interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of four Gentile empires in chapter 2, or saw the little horn, and four Gentile empires in chapter 7, or saw four Gentile empires and the small horn in chapter 8, or saw the abomination of desolation in chapters 8 and 9, all he had been doing was seeking understanding. Amen. He never rested. Amen. It agonized him until he got it. The truth is, is we are all served by this faithful Jew's diligent seeking of understanding. Amen. Who will be benefited by your faithful seeking of understanding, church? It is time to stand up now and seek the God of heaven, even if you are trembling about it. Amen. Amen. Pick up in verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Uh -oh. <laughs> then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Oh. Wow, you can imagine... That verse 13 is something that we could literally spend weeks on. Yeah. Oh, wait. We did spend weeks on it. You know, back in 2020, oh, come on. we preached five messages on the subject of celestial powers. Yeah. We also went to every church in the One Association and taught it to either their leaders or their congregation or both. So suffice it to say... We believe that real spiritual powers are being discussed in verse 13. And interpretations that downplay that fact should definitely be disregarded. Amen. Let's work through a few passages to remind you without going into the incredible complexity of that huge discussion. Yeah. So we're going to walk through a couple slides. This is actually a really, really good time to hone in a little bit and to remind yourself of some of the major points of our celestial powers teaching. You guys ready? Yes. yes. All right. On this slide, in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, 26 from Shem, bringing us to a total of 70. 70. Genesis 10 divides the world into exactly 70 nations. Yeah. Come on. This does not change based on modern or political boundary lines. God is not waiting to see if the, what the Brandon administration is going to do mm. with Ukraine. Come on. He has said there are 70 nations, and it is decreed. The 70 family designations are how the Bible defines the world. Yeah. Yeah. 70. 
Now, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 32 and find verse 8. As we're going to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, particularly in today's day and age, isn't it important to define the world as the Bible does? Yes. yes. There may not be no more important subject that we could study. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, yeah, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Things, the things you think are politics or not. There are other things at play. The term sons of God does not refer to Israel in this context, but rather angelic beings. These angelic beings are the spiritual heads of the nations under their dominion, and they were intended to operate under God's direction, will, and his command. Yeah, yeah. Nearly every single ancient Jewish work affirms this view. But as an example, we have another slide. When you are engaging with this slide, imagine... Why suddenly does one nation want to do something incredibly wicked? Why does something come out of a lab? Why does whatever happen, happen? Well, in our first worldwide rebellion, I mean the first one after the Noah flood anyway, the book of Jashar says this, and they built the tower in the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. The truth is, is that from the earliest accounts in Jewish writings, these angelic beings are a part of God's counsel, but are presented as full of error. Read the fourth chapter of Job or the 15th chapter of Job. You'll figure it out. They lead the people astray, but nonetheless are still in power over those nations. As Justin picks up in Deuteronomy 4, notice the very specific wording, and this will get clearer to you. All right, so this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19 through 20. Verse 19 says, And when you look up to the sky and see the sun the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things. The Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. You see, it was God who apportioned the nations under heaven to these rebellious powers. Israel, however, was not one of those nations. Say not. Not. Israel was not one of those nations. In fact, Israel is the one nation that God chose to lead personally. This next slide, the Lord's chosen nation, his inheritance from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 53. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance. Just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. Now we won't go into all the word studies emphasizing that Adonai won them as actual spoils of war. Wow. Or that they are what he will inherit as his own portion. Yeah, come on. 
However, the psalmist clearly displays Yahweh as calling these celestial powers into account for their rebellion in leading the nations astray. He goes even further and says that he will take every nation back from these powers. Mm. Consider Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Wow. In the heavenly council of Adonai, he holds these angelic beings, or Elohim, accountable for their actions. Come on. Now listen to verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly or show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In short, Adonai is displeased that these celestial powers do not act in a manner that resembles him. And the people under their leadership also do not act in a manner that resembles him. Wow. Now listen to verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This tragic truth is one of the many reasons that the world is in such disarray. They walk around in darkness. Let's keep uh, keep going to verse 6. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Hmm. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In Adonai's judgment, he has declared that these celestial powers will suffer the same fate as the mortal men that they have misled. Namely, they are going to die. Yep. <laughs> let's go on to verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Yeah. yeah. Come on. <laughs> Guys, as you're hearing that conclusion, arise, O God, judge the earth, you shall, as a declarative statement, inherit all the nations. The ramifications of this are startling. They're sobering. Adonai starts with only one nation, that nation being Israel, and he empowers them to be transformed into his image as his radiant bride. He does this through his own personage and Messiah and his own spirit of holiness. Then, from that launching place, Adonai will take back every nation in the world. Amen. Amen. Consider this next slide that is a representation of what happened at Pentecost. And you guys might be seeing something here. In the center of this map, the place that Ezekiel 5.5 calls the center of the nations, which also happens to be between all of the biblical empires struggling for dominance. Adonai sent spirit-filled Jews from all these nations back into the biblical world, now armed to join in Adonai's war to reclaim every tribe, every tongue, and nation from these celestial powers. Can we show you something that is provocative? Yes. (laughs) Now, the scale is not perfect. I want to admit that. Computers are not my thing. I should have had Caleb do it. But it'll give you an interesting impression. Oh, yeah. That's the Seleucid geography with Pentecost 
disbursement overlaying it. While you're looking at that, it'll probably become quite obvious to you what our motivation is towards the region that we identified as a swan on the map hanging on the wall. But those are subjects for another night. We're going to need to get back to verse 13 and share our thoughts on it. The reason that verse 13 is so intriguing is that it is a glimpse into the war between those angelic beings that are loyal to Yahweh and those angelic beings that are disloyal to Yahweh. The angelic power over Persia resisted the angelic power sent from Adonai that was bringing Daniel this message. Now the encounter was real and it was not an allegory. The text says it lasted 21 days. Yeah. And the it's a encou- long allegory. <laughs> and the encounter, well, it was decided decisively when a chief prince named Michael uh-huh. entered into the encounter. Come Would on, you heavy. like to see what Michael's name means? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Michael's name in the Hebrew is actually Michael, and it means who is as... <laughs> as you're focusing on this chief prince or archangel, his name means who is as or like God. He is one of the chief princes or archangels described in Daniel 10 as the prince of Israel and in chapter 12 as the great prince who stands in time of conflict over the sons of your people, Israel. He is as special guardian of the Jews. Michael will defend them in their terrific time of trouble during the great tribulation when the remnant will be delivered and established in the millennial kingdom. Come on. Now considering the definition of Michael's name and the reason that the other celestial powers are held in contempt, how important do you think that it is as a grafted in Gentile that you act as God does? That you are like God entering the contest? How important do you think that it is that you are transformed into the image of Messiah? How important do you think that it is that you are empowered by His Holy Spirit? How important do you think that it is to engage in the war that God is waging instead of your own carnal pursuits? Friends, there is an actual battle. There is an actual struggle. There is a great conflict underway, and we better be found on the right side of it by being transformed into his image. Come on. Now lastly, we want to make mention of something else in verse 13 before we move on. Something that first appeared in Daniel 4. It's the concept of powers of heaven. Listen to Daniel 4, verse 34 and 35. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? If it is startling or frightening to you that there is real warfare and that a righteous angelic being can be resisted by an unrighteous angelic being, it's time to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. These are real powers. Yeah. There are real 
consequences attached to these actions. Yeah. And ultimately, our God does whatever he pleases with these powers. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there is no struggle. <laughs> Contiguous books of the Bible tell a story about the holy God who promised to redeem a chaotic and a void world. His starting place is indeed the nation of Israel. In Daniel, we have a window into the role of faithful Jews. Come on! Daniel prayed. Daniel was a man that did not quit. I wonder just how many Christians we can say that about. The truth is, is that Nebuchadnezzar represents us in this whole scenario. He was a Gentile beast. He needed transformation. Yeah. And guess what? He got it yeah. because of the faithful ministry of a Jew, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Once that happened, he himself declared, God, you're sovereign over the powers of the earth and the powers in the heavens. Yeah. He also immediately sent a letter to that effect out to the whole entire world. Amen. Our struggles, they ensue on earth. And they're a reflection of the heavens. Struggles in general that ensue on the earth are a reflection of what is happening in the heavenly realms. All the while, our God ensures the appointed time will come at the end that he has already determined. Come on. You guys want to move on to verse 14? Let's go. Now, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now, it's interesting how often the angels point the interpretation of a message in two directions. First, the main focal point of all these prophecies is your people, meaning Israel. Secondly, they are always about the near and far future. It's tragic when the pre-tribulation rapturists read these passages. It is tragic. (laughs) They notice this and decide that it's because the church will not be here. Oh. And it's very convenient for them. Of course, I am being facetious. They believe it's convenient for them that every passage that speaks of blessings for Israel, the church is grafted in, into, and the one that speaks of difficulty are for Israel alone. If Israel is being blessed, they believe that the church is with Israel. But if Israel is being punished, then the church gets raptured out of it. Needless to say, it's pretty absurd. It's absurd when you really think about it. Because we are either with Israel in the difficulties, or we are not with them in the blessings. Well, say that again. We are either with Israel in the difficulties, or we are not with them in the blessings. We are either with them in the difficulty, or we are not with them in the blessings. Mm -hmm. Saints, if you can't apply that with your brothers, with your pastors, and the life that we are living, you won't carry it out later. But if you can do it now, you have confidence you'll stand on, on that day. Come on. You should note in the coming verses, specifically verse 16, that when it says, One who looked like a man touched my lips, that that is what most manuscripts of the Masoretic text say. But one of the manuscripts of the Masoretic text, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Septuagint. Oh, wow. Say then something that looked like a human hand touched my lips. Saints, that's not something that we're going to be able to explore a great deal. But the phrase human hand is likely the correct reading. It would naturally draw your attention 
Back to Daniel chapter 5. In other words, when this unique phenomenon occurs, it is signaling the transition between two kingdoms and perhaps even the clashing that is going on as that happens. In any case, why don't we go ahead and get into it. Revelation 15 through 17. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Keep going, brother. I must spoke. Get all the way down through 19. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed. He said, Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. There is so much that could be said about this interaction. But I fought not to interrupt because I wanted you to hear it in an uninterrupted fashion so that you would get a personal sense of the struggle that Daniel is in. It was difficult for him to endure this heavenly interaction. You could even describe his experience as agonizing the good agony. We really hope that the study of Daniel will provoke you to this kind of agonizing pursuit of the knowledge of God. The truth is, is I've been doing this a long time and I could use your help. Focus on the result of all of this interaction for a minute. Because there's another affirmation at the very end that Daniel is esteemed or beloved of God or the one whom God loved. Followed by the phrase, Shalom! Kazak! Kazak! It's almost like heaven is saying Daniel would have a right order with God. A right order with man, plus all of the strength and vigor that he would ever need because he was seeking the kingdom first. Come on. Come on. That is good, church. And let's pick up in verse 20, and we're going to read to 11.1, and we're going to stop in 11.1. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. All right, so you can see how atrocious atrocious this chapter break is. Can't you? If you ignore it, you will be better for it. The angelic figure is clearly outlining imminent spiritual conflict with both the powers over Persia and Greece, which happens to be the same order that God has determined the kingdoms will rise in. Interesting. They fight, and Adonai determines the outcome. Amen. So this angelic figure also tells Daniel that I took my stand to support and protect him. You know, endless debates have have always surrounded whether the pronoun him refers to Michael or Darius the Mede. Well, in either case, it leaves us with the idea that this angelic figure either supported Darius to make sure that he rose to power 
in the proper time, or far more likely than that, is this angelic figure took his stand to support and protect Michael as the transition occurred between Babylon and Persia. Mm -hmm. Now, in all considerations, it is important to note that Adonai called these events in advance, and then warfare had to be carried out for it to occur on earth. Man, that'll teach you an important lesson. As you are thinking about that, get ready for some of the most detailed prophecy in all of the Bible in the coming verses. Let's pick up in verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Ooh, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth. Sounds like we got four more Persian kings on our hands, and we got a slide for you. The first was Cambyses, Cyrus' son, who came to the throne in 530 BC. He was followed by Pseudo Smyrdis, who reigned a short period in 522 BC. Mostly because his mama didn't love him. (laughs) He was succeeded by Darius I, Histaspes who ruled from 521 to 486 B.C. He, in turn, was succeeded by Xerxes, known in the book of Esther as Ahasuerus, who ruled from 45 to 465 B.C. Xerxes was the most powerful, influential, and wealthy of the four. During his reign, he fought wars against Greece. Goodness gracious, history is just showing us how accurate the word of... I mean, goodness, when you have history like this, the word of God is amazing to lay this out. And in these next verses, you're going to see just how detailed this prophecy can be. So the four kings, one to four, Cambyses, Pseudosmyrdis, Darius I, Histaspes, and Xerxes, who was during Esther's time. So just like in every other prophecy in Daniel, we're now moving from the second empire in Daniel's visions to the third empire that is described in verse 3. So what about verse 3? Then a mighty king will What kind of king? A mighty mighty king king. who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. The mighty king will appear. We have a slide for you. (laughs) So in verse 3... And in chapter 11, Daniel 11 is just reiterating Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, but it's adding details that zoom a little closer. Did you say zoom closer? Yeah, a little closer. So the third empire is Alexander's Greece. You guys got that? Before we pick up in verse 4. Our point here is that we are reiterating the same four kingdoms and we're going to come to a transition just like Daniel 8 did. Daniel's one unified story. But we did like the picture of Alexander. (laughs) After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Mm. Now, we're not going to say we told you so. I'm just going to ask, did you notice that Alexander's empire was broken up 
and parceled out. Yeah. You get that? Yeah. Yeah. The kingdom of the leopard in Daniel 7, or the kingdom of the super goat in Daniel 8, is fundamentally changed after Alexander's death. Yeah. After Alexander's death, Greece does not rule the Middle East as a unified superpower. What is left after Alexander is not the Greek leopard or super goat. Well, the text says his empire will be uprooted. Yeah. Let's look at a slide where the two descriptions are laid side by side, Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. Uh, because this is, we're not aware of anybody that is teaching this, and we didn't know it a month ago. Daniel 8.22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power as his nation. Daniel 11.4, his empire, Alexander's empire, will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. This is a facet of the scripture that is missed by every interpreter that we are familiar with. And we genuinely feel privileged from heaven to have discovered it. Yes. You may not be aware of how big of an issue this is, but most Bible commentators, the best that we know, incorrectly disassociate the little horn of Daniel 7 from the small horn of Daniel 8 because those commentators believe that the two chapters are describing different kingdoms. This is why we've been showing you these two slides. All right, remember, this is a linguistic slide on Daniel 7's little horn and Daniel 8's small horn. Now, remember, we went through this. Daniel 7, 8, little horn in Aramaic. Daniel 8, 9, small horn in Hebrew. Now, remember that those words are pronounced exactly the same. And they have the same definitions, which tells us clearly they are not in two separate kingdoms, They both belong to the fourth empire, and they literally have the same name in two different languages. And their job descriptions are nearly identical as well as portrayed on this next slide. So attributes of the little horn in Daniel 7 is the first column, and attributes of the small horn in Daniel 8 is the second column. Let's go through these again. Came up from among them in Daniel 7, 8. Well, that certainly correlates to... Out of one of them came another horn in Daniel 8, 9. Next one. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, Daniel 7, 11. In Daniel 8, 11, set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. Wow. Thirdly, crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left, Daniel seven nineteen. Next, with Daniel 8 and the small horn, Surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. Daniel 8.13, same exact verbiage describing the little horn and the small horn. Next, we have the horn that looked more imposing than the others, Daniel 7.20. And in Daniel 8, we had rebels become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, in verse 23. Next, we had this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. 
from Daniel 7.21. And regarding the small horn in Daniel 8, verses 12 and 24, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. He will destroy the mighty man and the holy people. Now next we have Daniel 7.22. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment. In Daniel 8, it says, Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Daniel 8.25. And the last one, He will speak against the Most High. Daniel 7.25. Regarding the small horn in Daniel 8.25, Take stand against the Prince of Princes. So again, most commentators do not make this association because they believe that the little horn from Daniel 7 belongs to the fourth empire, while the small horn of Daniel 8 belongs to the third empire. And this is incorrect. Yep. So after the death of Alexander, his empire was uprooted, and four smaller regional kingdoms took over that geography. Now once you realize that after Alexander, the former subordinates formed separate kingdoms that are not Greece... Then you can more clearly see that Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 11 are all describing the same story with the same Antichrist figure rising. That is why we have been showing you this slide. So on this next slide, four Gentile beastly kingdoms. Remember, top right-hand corner of your screen, they're all decreasing in value while they are increasing in strength. So we began with the first kingdom, Babylonia, the head of gold, as Daniel 2 puts it, and the winged lion, as Daniel 7 puts it. Then we went to the second kingdom, Medo-Persia, which is represented as a chest and arms of silver in Daniel 2, and a lopsided bear in Daniel 7, and a ram with lopsided horns in Daniel 8. Then we come to the third kingdom, which is Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze in Daniel 2. The winged leopard with four heads in Daniel 7. Then the super goat with a singular horn in Daniel 8. You get that between 7 and 8? Four heads, then a single horn? Guys, this time period is when Alexander is alive and the four generals are under his command. They are subordinate to him and he is holding it all in line. But then we have an extraordinary transition. Their one leader dies and after Alexander's death, The four horns, they become the four kingdoms. They are broken up, parceled out, divided to the four winds of heaven. Now, out of those four horns, out of only one of them, comes a small horn. And that is where our fourth kingdom is birthed from, from the Middle East. Something that has the legs of iron, feet of iron, and clay from Daniel 2. It's indescribable. It's a beast with iron teeth and bronze claws in Daniel 7. Then it is the little horn that rises out of ten others, defeats three of them in Daniel 7. Are y'all beginning to get this? Yeah. Okay. That overview, I know we've been a little repetitive with it, but that's because there's no way on earth that you knew that before we entered into this study. We couldn't articulate it before. God is blessing us. As we said in future, I'm sorry, previous sessions, future generations will examine our work They'll scrutinize it. If it stands the test, then they'll be benefited. If it doesn't, 
at least we agonize to produce something. In any case, our conclusion, we, we clearly want you to get this and not be able to walk away, not go, is it really your birthday today? The little horn of Daniel 7, which belongs to the fourth kingdom, is the same as the small horn of Daniel 8, which we place in the fourth kingdom as well. What that means is that all of the prophecies in Daniel are telling the same story. They were arranged that way so that you would pick it up. And Daniel 11 is a more zoomed-in view of the exact content of Daniel 8. Remember that Daniel 8 said something. It says in Daniel 8, 9, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, insignificant, but grew in power towards the south, the east, and towards the beautiful land. Guys, after Alexander's Greece was uprooted, somebody say uprooted. Uprooted. Four separate kingdoms formed. It appears to us that the Bible tells us that out of only one of those smaller kingdoms will come a little or small horn that rises to lead the fourth empire. That's profound. It's profound for a lot of reasons, and I'll just give you a hint. It's not Roman. The coming verses describe the tumultuous time of transition. This time period foreshadows the spiritual climate prior to the arrival of the little or small horn that will lead the whole biblical world astray. In fact, this is why the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 says something. The Olivet Discourse says there will be wars and rumors of wars. And you think you understand that, and you don't. So we put it on a slide, and Justin's going to help you. All right, say wars and rumors of wars. They definitely are not a sign of the end. need you to capture that because we have all, wars are going on, it's the end times. Listen to Matthew 24, 5 through 6. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen But the end is still to come. Look, when asked about the end, Jesus specifically said these are not the signs of the end. The purpose of mentioning wars and rumors of wars is to describe the climate prior to the end. Ah. Verse 15 says, So when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Let the reader understand. Church, the truth is, the abomination that causes desolation is the sign of the end. So as we move into these next verses, it should be noted that they are not about the third Gentile beastly empire. In fact, every verse focuses on battles between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. They serve to forecast the environment And the region that the little horn will rise from to lead the fourth Gentile beastly kingdom that opposes Adonai and his people in an unparalleled unparalleled fashion. So we've we've got a slide for you. And it's on this subject. And as you're looking at this slide, understand something. Almost all 
commentators will agree that this slide represents the six Ptolemaic rulers who battled with the eight Seleucid rulers depicted in the coming verses. So on the left, you have the Ptolemies, the kings of the south, Egypt. You've got six rulers there, and on the right are the Seleucids, the kings of the north, Syria, and there are eight there. The truth is, is that we're not in a position to agree or disagree with their assessment of these things. Our feeling is that they are likely right, but without spending years studying the Ptolemaic kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom and the corresponding histories, well, we're somewhat at the mercy of the commentators and the historians, right? Can y'all appreciate that? That we're yeah. being honest with you? Yeah. yeah. We are not nearly as concerned about the details of things fulfilled in history as we are about the things that are not, not yet fulfilled in history. Yeah. Particularly surrounding the abomination that causes desolation. Yeah. Like the last one, the full one, that fulfills all of what Daniel talks about. In our next session, we're going to pick up in verse 21 with a detailed examination. Man, you guys better get ready for that. We will illustrate why we know that the subsequent verses contain future events that we should be looking for. But before you get too far into that, that's for next week. <laughs> so for now, let's acknowledge two important concepts. First is that even secular critics see verses 5 through 21 as containing such highly accurate descriptions of historical events that they assume Daniel had to be written after the fact. Wow. That's how accurate they are. Fortunately, Daniel is in the Septuagint and is on record well before many of the events yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Death nail. There you go. So we will not address the critics. Instead, we, will, we see their point, point of view as a validation of Scripture. Come on. Now, second is that we want to take a jab at the idea that there is or ever has been silent years between the older and newer Testament. Come on now. You want to yeah. see what we mean by taking a jab? Yeah. Yeah, it might be a right hook. <laughs> Each of these years were spoken of in advance. So as we go through these numbers, consider what the Bible has already spoken about before it's happened. The supposed silent years are from Malachi 4, 455 BC to get the Gospel of Matthew. Now consider, Daniel forecasted the rise of Alexander, who died in 323 B.C. The battles between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they range from 323 to 163 B.C. So Daniel forecasted a 160-year period with clarity that astounds the critics that we're describing. Wow. Now, that's not the part that catches us. He did so 213 years before it even began. Wow, that's awesome. Silent years. Silent years that had described in advance six Ptolemaic predictions, rulers that would rise and what they would do, and eight Seleucid predictions. And that's hardly silent. The Bible itself already outlined what this year, period of history would look like entirely prior to the coming of Christ. Wow. We're going to need to get back into our text because we have 17 minutes left. 
Remember, this text is a zoomed-in view of the transition between the Third and the Fourth Empire. We are not reading about either the Third or the Fourth Empire, but the climate that the small or little horn comes out of. The transition is defined by a struggle between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Bible has already told us that out of one of four horns will come a little or small horn, and yet the Bible narrows down to just the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Mm -hmm. That ought to be a giant hint for you. We've just cut our pool by 50%. Let's pick up in verse 5 and we'll start to comment briefly. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Yeah. The king of the south is Ptolemy I called Soter. And his commander is Seleucus I called Nicator. And historians find this description to be accurate of their relationship. Mm -hmm. We could do this in every verse, but we're not going to. That's why we gave you the slide. If you are interested in this kind of thing, if that's how you want to spend your next few weeks, then all you have to do is look up their names. You can even Wikipedia it and you'll find it. We're leaving that to your research because we're not historians and we're kind of at their mercy about it. What we do notice is that there is a change between verse 20 and verse 21, and that's where we'll spend our time next week. But for now, we're just going to keep pointing to the general struggle between them. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. All right, so this verse involves Ptolemy II Philadelphus and Antiochus II Theos, who arranged a political marriage between Ptolemy's daughter Bernice and Antiochus. The whole thing was interrupted by a murder. Again, a good commentary will give you all the background that you need. Now, each of these verses contain real, verifiable historical events. Like marriage. That also show us what the climate is like in the biblical world prior to the arrival of the little or small horn. Now, since we provided you with the chart and the verse correlations, which were on that chart, we are going to refrain from pointing to each historical fulfillment as we go. Again, all you need to do is look at any good commentary and they will have that information for you. We don't want to simply read you what they have already written. Can you appreciate the fact that we're not going to stand here and read what a commentator said as if it was our own work? The things that we share with you are the things that impact us and that we wrestle over. We are not going to simply take our favorite commentaries and read to you what they say. You do that. Yeah, Yeah. and by the way, it is fascinating. Go and read these commentaries. You're going to get some good stuff. But what we want you to notice is the continual struggle between the king of the north, which is Seleucid, and the king of the south, which is Ptolemaic. So let's keep a pace. Let's get into verse 7. One from her family line will arrive to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be, be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So it's really incredible 
how the Bible lays this out prophetically, and then history comes along and finally catches up with what the Word of God actually says. The brother of the previous bride was Ptolemaic, and he set out for vengeance against the Seleucids. Let's keep rolling. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. So you guys can see here that the Seleucids were attacked by the Ptolemies, and the Ptolemies were attacked by the Seleucids with frequency. They were attacking each other. The power shifted in favor of one kingdom or the other very frequently, back to back. But in the end, the Seleucids proved to be stronger. How about verse 11? Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not remain triumphant, for the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. Mm, wow. yeah, so it's, a, it's fun to read history surrounding these events because it confirms what the scripture has already said. But that's going to be an adventure for you to undertake in your own time. Now the hours will be well spent, but the precise nature of these things is already well documented. Um, so we want you to take note of the constant rivalry of what nobody should consider as a singular empire. And why are we highlighting that? It's because this is not Alexander's Greece. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to verse 14. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Now, when you read the history surrounding these verses, it involves alliances with foreign nations, has multiple parties involved, there's intrigue and all kinds of things going on, and yet another political marriage. Yeah. Apparently, at times, even the Jews picked a side that they thought might prevail in the hopes of obtaining peace and being on the right side of the battle. The point is that these were very turbulent times. They were not ruled by a singular empire that kept rule, order, and law. And they looked nothing like Alexander's Greece. Mm. So pick up in verse 18 for me, Linton. Then you will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. Mm. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress, fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Mm. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. One of the reasons that we've not gone through this in great detail is what looks like, okay, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. 
is really a progression of events that involve six Ptolemaic uh, monarchs and eight Seleucids. And we're not in a position to criticize that work. What we can tell you is even secular historians marvel at it and at the detail. We do want to give you an idea, and there's a highlight on this slide, and because our time is short, we just want to tell you that this particular commentator's, uh, and and he, he does not fall into our particular categories of thought, he, he makes the comment about the uh, Seleucid ruler. His dream of reuniting Alexander's empire under his authority was never realized. And these are people that placed these guys in the third kingdom. Now, this slide will be in your notes, and you can see there's these kind of detailed explanation for every one of these rulers. What we really wanted to do is say that this whole historical exchange, it points to the struggle between opposing kingdoms to become the singular superpower in the Middle East as Alexander had been. But none of them ever do it. We've learned in our previous sessions that a little horn from Daniel 7 will lead the fourth Gentile beastly empire. We have also noted that the small horn of Daniel 8 that abominates the temple is the same figure. That means that Daniel 9 is also describing his activities. And Daniel 10 and 11 are describing the great war that takes place for this little horn to arrive as the dominator of the Middle East. We've been told, we have been told that out of only one of these kingdoms, a small horn rises. Our thoughts are clearly on the Seleucid kingdom being that horn. This is true geographically, since they all ruled a majority of the Middle since the Seleucids ruled a majority of the Middle East from Syria. And it's also probably true ethnically. And it makes an awful lot of sense out of prophecies about Assyrians and Syrians. <coughs> Clearly, we're trying to set up our next session on Daniel 11.21 through Daniel 12 to be an exciting evening. And we hope you'll come looking forward to that. For the rest of our time this evening, we want to reflect on the subject of the silent years. Can we do that? Yeah. Yes. So just as Daniel forecasted the rise of Alexander and the battles between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids with incredible detail. Say incredible detail. (laughs) And those years were not silent, but foretold in advance. The Bible makes a similar statement about each of you. About who? This is Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. In order... That in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. For us to do. Church, there is no such thing as silent years in your lives. Unless you make the mistake of being silent. Unless you do not take a stand. Our God has arranged your work in advance. This has been true since your creation 
in Christ. Church, it is time that we follow in the faithful example of the faithful Jew, Daniel. Yeah. And it's time we take our stand, yeah. church. Amen. As we come Amen. to a close tonight, we wanted to remind you of what that faithful Jew, Daniel, did. What he looked like, what his character was from chapter 10 and verse 10 and 11. There was an angelic figure who touched Daniel. See, when a man like Daniel and somebody like you has been touched from heaven, it ought to make a lifelong difference in your life. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes. How can you ever be the same after you have been filled with God's Spirit of holiness? Remember the first words spoken to Daniel? He was called by name. Amen. Church, when you realize that heaven knows your name, how could you ever live for normal, earthly ambitions and not just your name? If God knows your name, he knows your spouse's name. He knows your children's name. And if you know God knows your name, how could we ever live normal, mundane lives that have earthly, carnal ambitions again. Now, as extraordinary as it is for heaven to know Daniel's name and to know your name, your name can be known for a lot of reasons. I've had people who knew my name for reasons I was not particularly proud of. But next it says, you're highly esteemed or a man greatly loved. Praise God. And I cannot explain what a difference it makes when you understand your relationship to the Father. When you find out that Adonai himself, the one who is moving the powers in the heavens and on the earth, is looking at you, O man, and says, I have great love for you. Man, you cannot rest on your loyals when you know that the God of heaven has his eyes on you like that. The impact of that ought to take the mundane in our lives, your workday tomorrow, your time with your family tonight, and add the significance to it of the heavens moving when you pray. Because your God has his eye on you and he loves you. Amen. When you've been touched from heaven. Yes. When you've been told that you're highly esteemed. And that had to have happened at salvation. And if it didn't happen, if that is not your feeling, then perhaps you were not actually saved. But those that have had the genuine experience, will you consider carefully Every word God speaks to you. You're not excited about Batman anymore like some adult child. You're not living for athletics anymore like some adult child. You're living for the bread that comes from heaven. And you consider every word he speaks to you carefully. It dominates your thoughts. It dominates your actions. And this causes us to have to do something. Look, when a man's touched from heaven, when a man realizes heaven knows his name, when a man knows that Adonai has a great love for him, and when a man knows that heaven has spoken to him, he cannot choose to not take a stand. This is the effect of these things occurring in the life of a Christian. You will take a stand when these things have happened to you. My God, how can we have all of these things called by his name, greatly loved, 
and careful consideration of his word without taking a stand for him. It's impossible. When that's incurring in your life, you start taking a stand in your parenting. You start taking a stand in your marriage, your workplace, the marketplace, in the entire world for God. Because you know that heaven has singled you out. And even though you are trembling like Daniel, you will have that ability to take a stand because heaven has singled you out and God is with you, giving you the strength to do it. Why are we talking about the Jew, the godly Jew, Daniel, like this tonight? It's because in all likelihood, you and your descendants will be facing something that looks like this. See what's in the middle of that map, church? That's Israel. That's the Jewish nation in the middle of that map. We're talking about the godly, faithful man who is called Daniel. Because the example that he set for us in the 10th chapter and all the way through Daniel is the example that will be required from you, from me, and from our descendants in order to stand faithfully, not just in the blessings of Israel, but to stand faithfully in the difficulties of Israel that will be incurred because of what that map means for the future history of this world. Israel's in the middle. They're surrounded. There are major difficulties and trials that are coming their way. But if we can stand up like Daniel did and have the same kind of reactions and the same resolve that that Jewish man of God did, thank goodness, when all comes against us, we will be able to stand. Amen. To prepare for that kind of scenario, we must imitate Daniel and also prepare to imitate this map. Now as we come to a close... I get very excited about seeing the nations and seeing the gospel go out from Jerusalem to Judea, (coughs) Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. I want to encourage you tonight. You might have to stand even though you're trembling, knowing that God will strengthen you as you go, as you faithfully take that next step of obedience. Don't lose heart in this room if you know God has called you by name. And what he's called you to seems impossible. Yeah. you got to learn to stand, even though you were trembling. Amen. Come on, church. Stand to your feet. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Sound put up Acts 24, verse 14. Twenty-six. sorry. 26, 14. This word impacted you tonight. Rich with meaning. Mysteries revealed. And stirring us to action right here and right now. Acts 26, 14 is Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. It says, We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul. He's being called by name. He's encountering God's presence. And he's being transformed. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. 15. 
Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. 16. Now, get up and stand to your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Come on. This is the call that we are hearing tonight from this chapter of Daniel. It's time for us to stand to our feet. It's time for us to have the iron of God in our spine. And even though our hands and feet tremble, we stand anyway. Amen. God is raising up men and women in this house who will stand for the name of God, for the kingdom of God, and for the people of God. And the result, even if it costs you your life, is that His glory is revealed through His people Israel. And you will be a participator in their restoration. Come on, let's pray together. Mighty God, as men and women who have been genuinely touched by your spirit, Lord, that you know us by name, Lord, that we would consider your words tonight, Lord, and that we would stand up, trembling as we may be, that we would stand up on the inside, that we would stand up for what you have done in us, that we would stand up for your purposes on this earth, through your people, Israel, Lord, that we might accomplish your will together with them. Lord, not just looking for the blessings, but looking towards the difficulties and saying, Lord, help us to stand up according to your will and according to your strength. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.